So in John chapter 20, I promised you last week we were going to get into the greatest news in the history of our faith, in the history of the world. So here we are. You guys got to read along with us as we were introduced to it in John chapter 20, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We get to celebrate Easter today. We get to celebrate Easter on Easter just a few months from now. I can't believe that. It's only a few months away, right? And, but as believers, we get to celebrate Easter every single day. We believe in Jesus. So the best news for us is that Christ is risen, amen? And so let us remember that. That's what we're all about as believers. That's what we're all about in our study today. That's what the scriptures will constantly continue to point us toward, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That truly changed the world. And that news will continue to change the world for all eternity. So here we are, John 20, verse 1, we begin that as it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. There's several different points we're going to get into. Today. The first one is preparation. Now, prior to this, if you remember, as we studied last week, the burial of Christ, it happened rather quickly. It was, they were coming to the Sabbath, and at the sundown on, the, on Friday, on the Sabbath day, they needed to cease working. They needed to be done, and so they were doing this quickly. They were preparing the body of Jesus and making the burial happen rather quickly. And so now, here, the first day of the week, after these three nights after Jesus had been in the tomb, here they come, Mary comes to the tomb to continue, to finish these preparations. It, the, the scriptures tell us, and uh, both uh, Mark and Luke tell us that she had come with other women as well to anoint the body. This was further preparation for the body to be properly prepared for the burial altogether. Uh, and we know that <clears throat> the tomb was sealed according to, uh, according to Matthew, it was sealed with great attention, great focus, that no one could get in or out of this tomb. Uh, there was the stone, this massive stone that would take many people to move. Uh, there was, on top of that, the Roman seal, and there was this wax seal literally put on the tomb, and in front of the tomb... And the Roman seal was to signify or to authenticate that the tomb was occupied and that the authority of Rome was behind it. The Roman seal, the stamp of approval. And so this was not only this massive stone that would take many people to move, there's the Roman seal. And then on top of that, the Roman seal, anyone who would break the, a Roman seal would face the punishment of death. So there's this emotional threat going on, right? There's a physical threat going on to anybody who would come against that seal. Great attention, great focus given to keeping Jesus in the tomb because they had heard that he claimed he was going to rise in three days. Further, there was a guard 
And the, the, a Roman guard that would have been placed out, out to guard this is actually a 16-man unit with strict orders, these 16 men, with no breaks, no sitting or even leaning against anything. If they're getting tired, can't even lean up against the rock, the stone, can't lean against the wall or anything nearby. They were each given jurisdiction over six square feet, and they needed to pay very close attention. There was no sleeping on the job. If one man fell asleep, then all 16 would be executed. I mean, this is serious attention given to keeping one man in a tomb and keeping anyone else out of the tomb. There were many layers upon layers of things to get through to get to that tomb in the first place, let alone opening the tomb. This is just to give us a picture of how secure the tomb of Jesus was. So Mary Magdalene went to anoint the body along with other women who joined her. This preparation to continue. Mary was a follower of Jesus. You, you may remember the story of Mary Magdalene who was healed by Jesus. She was possessed by seven demons and she was healed by Jesus. And from then on, she was a follower of Jesus Christ. And so as a follower, she went to see Jesus. She went to see the body. It was early, as it says, it was still dark. Right around the break of dawn, many scholars believe, the stone, she realized, she comes up to it, and the stone had been, it says, taken away from the tomb. Now, let's re remember all the things we just listed. She shows up, she doesn't notice a Roman guard, she doesn't notice a Roman seal, she, doesn't no she notices that the stone had been taken away. And the fact that the stone had been taken away means there was nobody there. The Roman guard is gone, the Roman seal is gone, the stone is gone. It had been taken away from this place. It was all gone. John, in the way that he writes this, would translate to indicate that it was something supernatural that took place. And it's pretty clear, obviously, in the midst of all the things that would have to happen, these 16 men who were standing guard, they're gone. The Roman seal is gone. The stone itself is gone. It's taken away. All of these things are gone. This would indicate that no doubt something supernatural had taken place. And then her response, she ran. Now, this response could be fear, anxiety, concern. I mean, there's a lot of emotion going on for her in this moment. But she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. She ran to Simon Peter and John. Now, remember, John's the one writing this. John will refer to himself time and time again as the one whom Jesus loved. In, in all humility, he's, he, no, really, in all humility, he doesn't name himself, and there's something to be said of that. He does not name himself. Time and time again, 
He doesn't name himself, but he does name Simon Peter. And when he names him as Simon Peter, this is like the, the pre-transformed Peter. That's that when he says Simon Peter, right? This is before Jesus would restore him, which we're going to get into in the coming weeks in chapter 21, when Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? And they go back and forth. He'll then refer to him as Peter later on. But so far, he's referring to him as Simon Peter. And that Simon Peter is often a man who's operating in the flesh. But John, Peter and John, she comes to them, she runs to them, and she says, they have taken away the Lord, thinking, assuming that the body of Jesus was stolen. By whom? We don't know. By who she thinks? We don't know. And she just says, they have taken away the body, and we don't know where he's gone. See, she has seen enough evidence to assume that the body wasn't there, and no one knows where it has gone. And this didn't obviously didn't just end with she saw the stone that was moved and then ran she saw something that indicated the body has been taken perhaps she went in and looked and 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 so here she she comes in this great state of chaos running to peter and john And with the evidence that she's gotten, she gives them a report. Now, she is clearly good at telling people what's going on, which is why we'll later see that Jesus will use her for exactly that. She's a good messenger. And so she's running to bring the message to them. We don't know where. And, and in bringing this message, she comes to them in a sense of trying to enlist their help to find Jesus. That's what, she was going to see Jesus in the tomb. And now she comes to enlist them to go help her do exactly that. Let's go see Jesus. Let's go find Jesus. And we continue verse, uh, as she ran, verse 3, we continue. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. The second point here, the first was preparation. Our second point here is anticipation. She comes with a message for Peter and John, and out of that word that they don't know where the body is, They've taken our Lord and they don't know where the body is. Where do they go? They don't go on a hunt. They go to the tomb and they run. There's a lot of running going on here. There's more running happening here in these few verses than anywhere else in the Bible. She runs to them. They run to the tomb because of this great anticipation. And in that anticipation, there's great hope. Hope for what could have happened, the resurrection. And at the same time, there's anticipation perhaps for, with concern. Concern for what could have happened, that somebody did take him. But nonetheless, there's great anticipation. And when, when we hear the message, do we respond with great anticipation? that something supernatural has taken place. 
that God showed up to do something amazing? Or do we just respond and like, oh, oh well. I guess we'll just figure it out. No, they had been with Jesus. And because they had been with Jesus, because they had known the truth that he would raise from the dead, because he had spoken of this to them, their response is anticipation. Let's go find out. Did it happen? Is this what we've been waiting for? And then, of course, John, humble enough not to name himself, competitive enough to mention that he beat Peter in a foot race. <laughs> it's important that he said, hey, let me just add that in there. Peter's slow. I'm fast. Or is he even saying, I had greater anticipation. I had an, an anticipation. Let's think about what that is. I mean, we all get... We all have great anticipation for all different things. You have, you know, maybe you're getting married, you have great anticipation. Maybe you're waiting to have a child, you have great anticipation. Maybe there's a new job or uh, something new and exciting of, in school or, or a project that you're taking on. There's great anticipation. Or you're trying to finish a project or do something. There's great anticipation. Or we just celebrated Christmas. There's now great anticipation for next Christmas. My kids are counting down already. We have like in our Christmas decorations a thing, a little chalkboard. It says, you know, this many days until Jesus' birthday. And, and they, they erase it and mark it down every day. And we take it. We only keep it out at Christmas time. But as soon as Christmas Day hits, they change it 365 days until Christmas. And then they erase it and then 60, until we take it and put it back in the attic. Because there's this great anticipation, and with anticipation comes joy and hope and expectation. There is always an expectation connected to anticipation. And sometimes we are disappointed in our expectation. Sometimes, because this world fails us, uh, we are anticipating you know, that special Christmas present that's coming, 300 and whatever days from now, right? And we're looking forward to it, and we can't wait for it. And then what if we don't get that present? What if it's all sold out? And what if you can't get your hands on it? Then we're disappointed. And we have not met our expectations, but guys, this anticipation is the one true anticipation. We will never be let down by Jesus. When we run with anticipation to see Jesus, we will not be disappointed. We'll never be disappointed. The bottom line is, as they both ran, they had this great anticipation, and that anticipation was for Jesus. What are we excited about? What, what is our expectation in life? What is our joy? What do we hope in? Do we hope in the resurrection, the good news? Or do we hope in all the other things that will, without doubt, eventually let us down? Because people fail. Because the things of this world fail. You know, the anticipation of Christ 
is truly the story of the history of the world. For so many years, there was the anticipation of the birth, the coming of the Messiah. And now here in John 20, there's this anticipation of the resurrection of the Messiah. And now, here we are thousands of years later, waiting with great anticipation for Christ to bring his bride to be with him and then to come and rule and reign. There's great anticipation. And when it comes to Christ, we can take that as an absolute. We will not be disappointed. There is hope in Christ alone. And hope does not disappoint, Romans tells us. Because the love of God has been poured out. In verse 5, we continue. And he, stooping down, this is John, because he got there first, because he's a faster runner. Mind you, he's significantly younger than Peter. Much better shape. But he, John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. Our next point here is examination. They came to the tomb, to the place that they knew that Jesus was last found. And they came to examine the situation, to see for themselves. John got there first. He saw. An eyewitness, he saw. And what did he see? He saw linen clothes. Now, the word for saw here in the Greek is blepo. And that is to perceive more than it is to actually see. Now, he saw linen, and he didn't want to go in the tomb for some reason. Maybe it was because of he didn't want to defile it or be defiled. He didn't want to disrespect the tomb of his Savior of the Messiah. And so he did not go in. But he got a glimpse, and out of that glimpse, he perceived that there was still a body there. He didn't yet get this understanding of this is an empty tomb. He saw the linen and he's just kind of waiting. But Peter. Peter is like, no, no, get out of the way. I get a picture of Peter out of breath. You know, they're running, okay? And John gets there, he stoops down, he kind of peeks in, and then Peter just comes plowing through, out of breath, get out of the way, John, <laughs> you know, and he, he steps right in. This is the Peter we know and love. And this is the Peter that we have seen so many times. Now, we've seen him, you know, putting the cart before the horse and putting his foot in his mouth and all these things, right? But this was one of those times he just plows through because he had to see 
and he had to examine. He had to know. Now remember the last interaction that Peter had was with Jesus. Was in the garden, personally, this interaction in the garden, that he cut off the ear of a man, you know, showing his allegiance that he was going to fight for Jesus and defend Jesus, and Jesus put the sword away. Jesus told him that he would deny him. Then Peter goes on to deny Jesus three times. Peter, in his last encounter in remembering what took place, was hearing the rooster crow after he had denied Jesus three times. And so now, at the, with the anticipation that perhaps Jesus is risen, he plows through everything. There would be nothing to stop him. You see what John in his examination concluded that there was still a body there from just a glimpse. He didn't go in, but Peter went in. Nothing was gonna stop him. He showed up, he entered, and his examination was more hands-on and more direct and this gives us a picture of, guys, different people are in different places, and they have different needs and different ways of understanding. And so he goes right for it. He's a hands-on learner. I'm, I feel like I'm like Peter. I, if I could get my hands on something and figure it out, I'll learn it better that way. But he saw... And as it says he saw, it's just speaking of the fact that he saw there was no body there. He had a more clear picture and a more clear piece of the evidence before him. But then it says that John followed Peter. He went in. Peter was a leader, no doubt. And Peter sometimes led in very interesting ways. And like we said, he put the cart before the horse or put his foot in his mouth, but in this, he went to experience exactly what's going on, and John followed. And out of that, John believed. Because greater examination will lead to greater belief. If you want to go deeper in your relationship, just keep digging deeper into the word of God. And the more you dig into the word of God, the more you examine the scripture, the more you examine Jesus, the more you're going to believe. The greater your faith will be. The deeper your relationship will go. I, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Lee Strobel. This guy who was out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that attempt to disprove it, he found there is so much evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there are many throughout history that are similar. There are lawyers who have investigated and tried to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then came to this place of saying, you know what? It's just true. Because greater examination will lead to greater belief. 
And so John follows Peter's lead and he gets into the tomb and that examination that goes deeper than his first little glimpse led him to believe it was true. Jesus was risen. Jesus is not there in the tomb and that led him to, now they could have just continued on with what Mary first assumed. They had taken the body. But it says that they believed They believed that the resurrection had happened. John made assumptions before with very little little evidence, but now he experienced clearly, and he believed. He perceived now with significance of the empty tomb because of the evidence that was before him. And he believed just through seeing the empty tomb. Before he even saw the risen Christ, he believed. Verse 9, for as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. They didn't know the scripture, and what this is saying is that they didn't know yet the significance of the resurrection. They knew Jesus had said he was going to raise from the dead. They knew that. And and now John is in that place of believing that it's true, it's fact, it had happened, but the fact that he must rise again, they didn't yet understand the significance of that. But they would. That would come later through the Holy Spirit, the early church, understanding the significance of the resurrection. They believed the fact of the resurrection, but didn't yet understand the importance of the resurrection in relation to faith. I mean, this was good news to them. Of course, if Jesus is alive, that's wonderful. That would make them really happy. But they don't yet understand the purpose. They don't yet understand the importance. Scripture would bring a better understanding. Doctrine and teaching in the early church would bring a better understanding and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit would bring them to a place of understanding. But the resurrection is vital. That brings us to, let's pause for a moment. They didn't yet understand the importance of the resurrection, but we do. We know the resurrection, it sets Christianity apart from all other religions. It sets our faith apart from all other religion because Jesus, our Lord and Savior, rose from the dead. There is no other supposed God who has risen from the dead. The resurrection proves the innocence of Christ. He was completely innocent, and the fact that he rose from the dead proves that by all accounts, he was innocent. The resurrection proves to satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus was the acceptable sacrifice, and that resurrection proved that he had satisfied the wrath of God. And the resurrection then assures our resurrection. This is the great hope 
Now, they didn't understand all of that yet. They heard Jesus speak. They heard Jesus say even, I am the resurrection and the life. They didn't yet understand the significance. But we can look at the significance. We can understand the significance that we might have eternal life. He performed, he, he rose from the dead to prove to us that he is the son of God, that he is who he says he is, that he will do what he said he will do, that he fulfills every promise, he fulfills every prophecy, and that we can have hope that we can live our lives with great anticipation that what he says will happen will happen because he rose from the dead. The greatest miracle and the greatest news in the history of the world. In verse 11, now we see another perspective of this whole thing that's going on. Now, Peter and John, they run, they enter, they see the empty tomb, leads to belief, and then they go home. But Mary, but Mary, she stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary, our next point here, is lamentation. Sorrow upon sorrow. Mary wept. Peter and John, they come running, they see the whole, they get the picture of what's going on, they believe, and they go home. Mary's left, and she's in this place of just sorrow because she hasn't seen what they have seen. And when we say seen, right, we're talking about seeing, and seeing is believing, and seeing is truly knowing and understanding and perceiving in your heart, in your mind's eye, as the Greek translation would indicate to us. It's truly understanding is what we're talking about. So she hadn't seen what Peter and John had seen. But she has this sorrow upon sorrow. She goes to take a look even for herself to try to see perhaps what they had seen. And as she goes, she definitely doesn't see what they saw. They saw the linen. They responded in belief. They went home, and now she sees two angels in the tomb. One at the head and one at the feet of where Jesus had lain. The same as the cherubim at the mercy seat. this further glorious fulfillment of who Jesus is and what he does. But this is right there in the tomb in front of her. She stoops and she looks in, she sees two angels, and how does she respond? 
She doesn't. She doesn't respond to the two angels in white. She's still caught up in sorrow, which is natural. The natural response is sorrow. And now anybody who's experienced grief or loss in our midst can understand that sorrow upon sorrow. It's really hard to see past yourself. It's really hard to see past your circumstance. And for her, two angels in white are in the tomb where Jesus had laid. And she's not blown away by it. She doesn't, she's not pausing everything like, hold on, there's angels here. And they're talking to her. She's caught up in the, in the natural response, which is sorrow. She's not yet seeing the spiritual importance. And we too can get so caught up in the natural that we don't see the spiritual realm. We don't see the spiritual things that are going on around us or the spiritual things that, are, that, are, that God is trying to use to influence us. We're caught up in the natural. And her response then is, they have taken my Lord. Why are you weeping is what they ask. And she said, they have taken my Lord. Now she's having a conversation with the angels that are in the tomb of Jesus. Again, not like, other times we see angels in scripture, people are freaking out. And the, the angel's first response is oftentimes, do not be afraid. Now let's make that the starting point and go from there. She's not afraid. She's not showing any fear here. And further, she's going to show even less fear. She's like calling them out. And they, Why are you weeping? They have taken my Lord. the one who changed her life, the one that she was seeking, and she was without doubt clinging to. For the, these years that she had followed Jesus, she was clinging to Jesus. And now continuing to try to cling to Jesus, which he will address shortly, but she's clinging to him. And she's saying, my Lord, who changed my life. Remember, she was possessed by seven demons. He changed her life. And she wanted to mourn Jesus. The best way she could figure out she was going to mourn Jesus. And this just gives us a picture, guys, of our mourning. Things are hard. Circumstances are so difficult sometimes. But we need to get the right perspective and set our mind on the spiritual because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And we have a hope in eternity. That doesn't mean we stop mourning. It doesn't mean, we, hey, just stop whining. That's not it. Grief is real and it affects us so much. but he will address it. He'll lead us. He'll teach us. He'll draw us to himself. She was in complete despair, and she was looking for the one she was clinging to, my Lord who changed my life. 
in complete despair, and she still believed Jesus to be dead. She hadn't yet seen the hope of the resurrection. But then we continue, verse 14. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be a gardener, said to him, sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni is to say teacher in her great despair and in her great need Jesus himself shows up there may be other things that are revealed to us along the way in the midst of our circumstance in the midst of our suffering and we may not see the spiritual still but when we are lacking when we are hurting when we are in despair Jesus shows up in our sorrow, in our deep hurt, in our deep pain, even in our doubt. She had not seen yet the spiritual. She had doubts that Jesus was alive. Then Jesus shows up. Remember I said before, further examination leads to greater belief. Keep going. Keep pressing. Even if you doubt. Even in your moments of doubt. Even in your moments of maybe saying, why, God, am I going through this? Why is this happening or why has this happened? They have taken my Lord. Jesus shows up because he cares so much about you. Because he has so much compassion and grace. He wants to teach you. And when you experience Jesus showing up, it changes everything. When you trust in that, when you put your hope in the resurrection, it changes everything. And that's why Jesus shows up, is so that we would see the resurrection for what it is. And he says, why are you weeping? She didn't know that it was him. She didn't expect to see Jesus. That's first of all. That's why she didn't know it was him, because she didn't expect to see him. But she was still so much in distress, she couldn't even see Jesus. She had been weeping. You know how it is when you're weeping. Man, when you're really weeping, this tells us how bad she was weeping, how much she was mourning, because she couldn't even see clearly. Perhaps even there's other scholars that would indicate that Jesus looked different at this point. Why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? In that question, Jesus is offering comfort and giving opportunity for belief. Giving opportunity for remembrance of the promise of the resurrection. 
When Jesus shows up, he gives opportunity to us to put our belief in him. And he comforts us at the same time. And now her response, she, goes, she doubles down here. She's going further. Tell me where he is. Now imagine this, Mary. Maybe she was really just a strong lady. I mean, she was clearly a strong lady. It took seven demons, right? But her response here is, tell me where he is. She assumes still that Jesus is dead and that his body had been taken and that this is just a gardener, a man who is a keeper of the garden and says to him, where is his body? I'll take him. She's gonna take him. Jesus, full-grown man, who's been now covered in, the last chapter tells us, we studied last week, 100 pounds of spices. And she's going to go get him, and she's going to take him. She's going to carry him, bring him back. I got this. She is dedicated. No doubt she is dedicated. Devoted to finding Jesus with reckless abandonment, assuming that she can figure it out from here. But then Jesus stops it all. He showed up already to meet her in her despair, to meet her in her suffering and her grief. And she's still not quite seeing him. So what does he say? Mary. There is the imperative here, the exclamation, Mary, stopping her in her tracks. Mary. And she responds, teacher, Rabboni is this term of endearment. Teacher, Jesus changes everything in calling her name. If you remember when we studied in John chapter 10, speaking of the good shepherd, Jesus, in verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. Here is his sheep who hears his voice. She knows his voice and the calling of her name. Fulfilling the hope even of Isaiah chapter 43 verse 1 where it says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Jesus sees her and he addresses her by her name, calls her by her name. This great hope fulfilled and great comfort offered to her. Jesus calling her and claiming to be her redeemer at the same time. Mary, you are mine. She heard her name and she knew it. You are mine. He's the redeemer. And she finally sees Jesus, recognizes him, and glorifies him. Rabboni. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her.
our final point, commission. She, first of all, she clearly was clinging to Jesus. We already discussed that. She was clinging to Jesus emotionally and spiritually in every way, and now even perhaps physically clinging to Jesus. As he called her name, she says, Rabboni. But Jesus is addressing all of this. Don't cling to me, not yet at least. As he says it, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. So what that would indicate is that when he has ascended to the Father, then you cling to that relationship. Then that relationship is the most essential thing in your entire life. It's, it's the essential because Jesus fulfilled all things that we cling to him and the relationship. But here he says, don't cling to me. I've got a job for you. Physically, you need to let go. You get that picture, right, when you're like, your kids are clinging onto your legs. You're like, okay, yeah, I just, I need to take care of something right now. But for her, he says, you need to take care of something right now. She had seen, do not cling and do not linger here. Even at the sight of the risen Christ, he says, go from here. Much like, uh, you know, we, we see time and time again, Jesus says, go. Don't hold on to just the moment, but let it change you and go from here. She was the first eyewitness of the risen Christ, a woman, a woman who had been previously possessed by seven demons, a woman of bad reputation, and she's the first to see the risen Christ. God uses women and reveals himself to them in tremendous ways in scripture. We just studied on Wednesday this week, Hagar, Genesis chapter 16, the first witness of the pre-incarnate Christ. This woman, in complete despair, her, everything was so miserable in her situation with Abram and Sarai that she fled from her well-being. She fled from her life. She ran away entirely. And then Jesus, pre-incarnate, shows up and meets her. The first time in scripture we see the pre-incarnate Christ. Further, Mary, the mother of Jesus, obviously the first to witness Christ incarnate. And now we see Mary Magdalene, the first to witness the risen Christ. God knew exactly what he was doing, knowing that woman would so often throughout history be looked down upon. And he gives them such great preference in scripture. Let's remember that. He also knew that the best way to spread the news of the resurrection was to get the women to tell the good news. Tell Mary. She already showed that she's a good messenger. And so now he's going to use that. Further, a woman being the first eyewitness would be great evidence for the resurrection. Nobody in 
that day would want to give credit to a woman for being the first to see the risen Christ. So John, in writing these words, is first of all demonstrating his humility, but also verifying it to be true because nobody would give credit to a woman. This wouldn't be a made-up story. And Jesus says, then tell my brethren, the men who, for the most part, forsook him, he now calls brethren. Previously, he had called them servants. Then he had called them friends. Now he calls them brothers. Go tell my brothers. The resurrection has changed everything. And what does he want her to tell them? That I am ascending. He already said he would rise, and now he did. Now he says, go tell them, tell them that I am ascending. There's work to be done. They need to gather for this. They're going to be witnesses. He makes sure to prepare them for his ascension, making sure to let them know even that he is risen. As she tells them that he is ascending. I saw the Lord. He is ascending. And what he's saying in that is he's risen and he would never die. He's ascending. Now, there was this one guy, if you remember, in John chapter 11, who was risen from the dead, but he died again. Lazarus. Jesus raised him from the dead. Jesus called him forth out of the grave, but he died again. And Jesus is claiming here, yeah, I am risen, and I'm not going to die again, but I will ascend to heaven. All this while recognizing the validity of the relationship that the disciples have with God. As he says these words, say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. He's differentiating the relationship between him and God and them and God, but knowing that they have direct access to God. Letting them know that they have direct access to God. My Father and your Father. My God and your God. I'm going. As I said I would, I'm going. And so she does. Mary came, told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. She is the first evangelist. She is the first missionary because she is the first witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let us, as we experience the work of Christ, the resurrection power of Christ, let us be changed. And I ask you this question, has it changed you? Has the good news of the gospel actually changed your life? Do you have the intimate relationship with Jesus that you hear him call your name and you respond in honor and glory? That should be our natural response to the revelation of Jesus. The resurrection needs to change us because the resurrection changed the world.
and it should move us. We, like Mary, are commissioned. Tell people. Now, it starts with telling the brethren. It starts with telling the church. And in that, we need to remind the church. That's why I'm standing here today. Reminding the church, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And he ascended to heaven. We get to to the next part already. We'll skip ahead. He ascended to heaven. He calls you by your name. And he promises that he is coming again. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you're alive. We pray that you would work in our hearts, God. Make us more like you. Bring us to repentance. Change us. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, as I often do, I want to give you an opportunity to enter in, to walk with him. He desires you. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead to give you the hope of eternity, everlasting life. The purpose of the resurrection. He desires fellowship with you. And if you don't have a relationship with him, that you are distant from God. The Bible says you are at enmity with God. But he made a way for you to have fellowship. So would you enter in? And you could simply ask him to come into your life, confess that you're a sinner, and confess that you believe in him. In his death, in his resurrection, and ask him to come into your life that you might be changed by the resurrection. That you might experience Jesus, the resurrection and the life. So if you would, you can pray that prayer. You could say, dear Jesus, I believe in you. I confess that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross and rose from the dead. I give my life to you. I need you. Change me. In Jesus' name.